it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, March 8th, 2023. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and around the clock, on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Catch me tonight on Kennedy, Fox Business Network. I'm on the panel. About halfway through the show, I think, is when I'll pop up with the whole team. Again, that's FBN, right around 725 or so. Hope to see you there. Back at home in the D.C. Bureau here in our nation's capital, Fox News satellite headquarters down here. And I'm very happy to be back, to be back after a brief foray over into Chicago. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in the show. Political editor at townhall.com. That's one of my responsibilities. You can read my stuff there. You can catch me on the tube, as I mentioned, Kennedy tonight uh, and a busy week ahead. Cudlow tomorrow. He's going to be in D.C. I'll be at the Capitol with him on set. That'll be fun. Here on the radio side, this is what we've got in store for you today. Dagan McDowell, host of The Bottom Line, co-host of that program. She will be here later this hour. To kick off our next hour, Britt Hume will join us. Byron York in studio a bit later on after that. And then Carol Markowitz, who's got a new book out with Bethany Mandel. I'll ask her about the book and a few other topics as well. So we are loaded up, as they say, four great guests ahead. A lot to bring to your attention. I want to start with something that happened on Capitol Hill today. There were two significant inquiries, hearings over on the Hill. In the House of Representatives, one on the origins of COVID-19, one on the catastrophic failures of the Biden administration in Afghanistan and that withdrawal two summers ago. That was just such an abomination. And I would say, looking back at 2021 and what we all saw play out before our eyes in horror, There has been shockingly little accountability for what happened, including at the very top, with big, important promises made by the president to Americans, to allies that weren't just broken a little bit. They were shattered. And fortunately... There was a change of power in Washington, D.C. after these most recent elections. Wasn't the type of election that Republicans were hoping for across the board. Really should have been a lot better. Wasn't for a number of reasons that we've talked about, and I'm sure we'll continue to talk about. The fact remains, though, the House of Representatives did flip control. And for that reason, you have Republicans controlling gavels on key committees. And there are questions being asked and topics being explored in depth. That simply would not be explored at all or this way if the Democrats had maintained their control. 
there's not a ton that House Republicans can do with a very thin majority, a Democratic Senate, a Democratic president. That's the reality in our constitutional order and the separation of powers. What they can do is apply pressure to the Senate and the president on a number of topics, including crime, where the Republicans are on the brink of a big win, actually, on that front. Specifically here in D.C., we will revisit that issue later on, probably with Byron. They can pass legislation to send a message to the American people. Here's what we would like to do in the House of Representatives, even if it's not going to become law. And they can hold hearings like this and issue subpoenas and drag people up and put them under oath, under bright lights and force them to answer questions. And there is value to that. Right. Transparency, accountability. These things matter. So I'm going to start with COVID-19. Dr. Robert Redfield is the former CDC director, and he was one of the people who dared to suggest that the lab leak theory might be real long before it was fashionable or acceptable to do so. We talked about it here, of course, but in polite society, especially in the science clique, with like the chief mean girl being Dr. Fauci, Redfield was kind of portrayed as this quack and this irresponsible weirdo. And, of course, you know, branded with the Trump thing and all of that. Well, what he was saying looks better and better by the day. He was up on the Hill today talking about it, answering questions about what happened and how this plague that killed millions of people and disrupted the world got started. Seems like not a minor question or a small thing to try to discern. Seems like a pretty darn big one. Redfield had his theories. He explained them at the time. They were perfectly rational and viable at the time, but not to the gatekeepers of truth, self-appointed, who throw around terms like misinformation, conspiracy theory all over the place as if it means something anymore. Unfortunately, it doesn't because of some of their, I'd say, very irresponsible actions and ideological agenda-driven rhetoric. So here is Redfield, Dr. Redfield, back before Congress, being questioned by a number of members of Congress. Here's one exchange, cut 23, listen to this. Dr. Redfield, has gain of function created any life-saving vaccines or therapeutics to your knowledge? Not to my knowledge. Has gain of function stopped a pandemic, in your opinion? No, on the contrary, I think it probably caused the greatest pandemic our world has seen. Do you find any tangible benefits uh, to gain-of-function research at this time? I personally don't, but I do want to stress, I think the men and women that support it are people of good faith because they truly believe it's going to lead to a potential benefit. I disagree with that assessment. So that's magnanimous there at the end, where he's saying, look, all the people who were funding and involved in gain-of-function research, these aren't you know, evil Frankenstein scientists trying to kill us all. They were trying to achieve breakthroughs. They saw merit and value in this. Of course, he said, I disagree with that assessment. But in terms of what it has done so far, that middle back and forth that we just played, has gain of function stopped a pandemic, in your opinion? Response from the doctor, former CDC director. No. On the contrary, I think it probably caused the greatest pandemic our world has seen. 
Then we get to the issue of truth, speaking the truth, and people who felt like they could not speak the truth. And boy, have we talked a lot about this with Dr. McCary, Dr. Sapphire, and others on this program. Here's Redfield also speaking from personal experience on this front in Cut 24. I think the first and foremost is we've got to tell the truth. When you don't tell the truth, you've got a problem. And I think if you go back, there were many times when public health officials packaged the message to what they wanted to say, but it wasn't necessarily truthful. The second thing, you have to have the courage when you're a public health official to say, I don't know, when you don't know. I mean, it's kind of elementary stuff. But throughout COVID, that was not common wisdom. Right. That type of approach and humility was, in fact, largely attacked by people who would just declare and insist that the rest of us just obey. And that did not build a lot of trust, did it? And that trust deficit, I think, is going to be harmful for a long time, because, by the way, sometimes the experts are right and we probably should listen to them and there'll be a lot fewer people eager or willing to do so based on their performance this last time. And that's not the skeptics' fault, for the most part. That's their fault. So Redfield, again, underscoring what he has been talking about and hypothesizing for quite some time in Cut 25. Listen to this. Based on my initial analysis of the data, I came to believe, and I still believe today, that it indicates that COVID-19 more likely was the result of an accidental lab leak than a result of a natural spillover event. This conclusion is based primarily on the biology of the virus itself, including the rapid high infectivity for human-to-human transmission, which would then predict rapid evolution of new variants, as well as a number of other important factors, which also include the unusual actions in and around Wuhan. Wuhan in the fall of 2019. Yeah, that's a lot of circumstantial evidence right there. Following some science as well. Of course, you have the cover up obstructive behavior of the CCP as well. As I've said before, if this came from a bat by accident, they would want that evidence out there for the world to see. Not our fault. Happened in nature. What an unfortunate coincidence. They didn't do that. They have blocked a really, truly comprehensive, thorough, robust investigation at every turn. And if you want to get a sense of why, you can think about their motives and you can think about the alternative to the natural occurring theory. And then the why doesn't seem so much like a mystery. So that was Redfield today under oath saying and repeating some of what he said before in very stark terms. And this time a lot more people are sitting there looking at him saying, oh, gosh, maybe he's right, when they wouldn't have given him the time of day not long ago. And that's on them. It's not on him. By the way, in case you're curious how Democrats are grappling with some of this, well, not terribly well. The ranking Democrat on the committee today spent his time on this select subcommittee on COVID. Right. The point 
of this subcommittee where Redfield was testifying was to try to get more to the bottom of how COVID-19, this massive pandemic, started. Well, Raul Ruiz, Democrat from New Mexico, National Review reports this, spent his allotted time during Wednesday morning's hearing, which was supposed to be about COVID origins, berating one of the witnesses over a book he'd written more than 10 years ago on the human genome, implying that the book might have been motivated by racism. I don't know who this guy is. I haven't read the book. This is a hearing about the origins of a massive pandemic that wreaks so much destruction and death and disruption all around the world. And the leading Democrat on the committee decided that the best use of his time was to go after one of the witnesses by basically just calling him a racist, saying, oh, you wrote this book 10 or 11 years ago, and we think it might have been racist or motivated by racism. Just an endless obsession with this stuff from these people. Like, does the guy have expertise and something valuable to add on this topic, or does he not? If he's unqualified and has no idea what he's talking about, then you can ask that question. But it's like, oh, you know, here's something you wrote. What? Let's just say you take it at face value, which I'm not saying that we should. Like, what what pertinence does that have? If there was something problematic that they've derived from a book that he wrote a decade ago, what does that have to do with this? It's just like, oh, uh, we don't like you. You're a racist. That was the leading Democrat on the committee. That's what he opened with. In case you're curious on the priorities here. Are you surprised? We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll tell you about another hearing on Afghanistan, also extremely important, some emotional testimony that we'll get to as soon as we come back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So another hearing beyond the COVID hearing that we were just talking about that went down today in the House of Representatives was on Afghanistan and our withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I know a lot of Americans supported getting our men and women out of that country after two decades. I think it was more nuanced than just that. Like every last person gone or a small, stable, residual force that was not suffering casualties but keeping some stability and peace, I mean— A lot of people, I think, were framing it as a false choice. Joe Biden said we're getting out. A lot of people said, "Okay, let's do it. But he said we're going to do it in a methodical, dignified, orderly way. And everyone that we owe will get out if they need to. Our Americans will get out. Our allies will get out. We will ensure that it will be done in this orderly manner, and obviously that is not what happened. Absolute chaos, people clinging to the landing gear on planes, plummeting to their deaths, Taliban and terrorists running through the streets, abducting people who were seen as traitors, 
Of course, the suicide bombing that killed our men and women outside the absolute basket case of humanity, the mess at Kabul airport, the abandonment of huge amounts, billions of dollars worth of equipment to this new terrorist government that was taking over. Just a disgrace. You can say it was the right thing or the wrong thing to get out. You cannot defend how we got out. And that is on this administration and this president. I know it's been a while and we all move on and the news cycle moves on. But for some people, their lives don't move on. Their lives were forever touched by this, indelibly impacted by this. They were there. They were forced to live through the disgrace by the decisions of their superiors. One of them is U.S. Marine Corps Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews, who testified today. Really tough to watch. This is just a a montage of some of the things that he recounted under oath earlier. I want you to hear it in Cut 22. I requested for the battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Brad Whited, to come to the tower to see what we did. While we waited for him, psychological operations individuals came to our tower immediately and confirmed the suspect met the suicide bomber description. He eventually arrived, and we showed him our evidence, the photos we had of the two men. We reassured him of the ease of fire on the suicide bomber. Pointedly, we asked him for engagement authority and permission. We asked him if we could shoot. Our battalion commander said, and I quote, I don't know, end quote. I stayed there waiting for the family members standing against a two-foot canal wall. Ten minutes passed. Then a flash and a massive wave of pressure... I'm thrown 12 feet onto the ground, but instantly knew what had happened. I opened my eyes to Marines dead or unconscious lying around me. Our military members and veterans deserve our best because that is what we give to America. The withdrawal, <clears throat> the withdrawal was a catastrophe in my opinion, and there was an ex- inexcusable lack of accountability and negligence. The 11 Marines, one sailor, <clears throat> and one soldier that were murdered that day have not been answered for. Have not been answered for. Sounds like there was indecision when they could have taken this guy out. They didn't. Just that incident, the loss of life, the Americans killed, emblematic of the broader, massive policy failure of this administration. And did a single person lose their job over any of it? Biden people were reportedly worried about this line of inquiry. They should be. It is a dark stain on their legacy. I appreciate this hero's testimony today. We'll be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. As we continue on the Guy Benson Show, I'll remind you that our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. Joining us now once again is Dagan McDowell, anchor and analyst on Fox Business Network, co-host of the new show, The Bottom Line, with Dagan and Duffy. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern on FBN Weekdays. And Dagan, it is great to have you back from New York. Thank you, Mr. Benson. 
I would like to get your reaction to this letter that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis fired off to Joe Biden, the president, yesterday. I don't have time to read the whole thing to you, but uh, it was pretty blistering and also quite specific. And it deals with a tennis player. And if you're not a tennis fan, then maybe you don't care. But it goes beyond just one athlete. It goes to COVID policies and ongoing preposterous standards that this administration is imposing on immigration, not legal immigrants, obviously, but everyone else going through this, uh, the legal process. So here's what DeSantis wrote in the letter that's dated March 7th, 2023. Dear President Biden, it has been reported that Novak Djokovic has formally applied and been denied permission from your administration to enter the United States so that he may compete at the upcoming Miami Open tennis tournament. This denial is unfair, unscientific, and unacceptable. I urge you to reconsider. It's time to put pandemic politics aside and give the American people what they want. Let him play. DeSantis says, it's not clear to me why, even by the terms of your own proclamation, Mr. Djokovic could not legally enter this country via boat because I guess Biden signed rules that foreigners coming to the U.S. have to be vaccinated if they arrive certain ways, like by air. But there's no similar proclamation involving foreign arrivals by boat. So that seemed like a loophole here. Mm -hmm. Also, it just underscores how ridiculous all of this is. Uh, But I guess they've denied him that possibility as well. DeSantis goes on to write this. The only thing keeping Djokovic from participating in this tournament is your administration's continued enforcement of a misguided, unscientific and out-of-date COVID-19 vaccination requirement for foreign guests seeking to visit our great country. American tennis legend John McEnroe recently termed this restriction absurd. He was quite he was quite right to say so. We are now three years since the onset of COVID-19, and we have learned many valuable and often painful lessons during that time. For one thing, it's now clear the COVID-19 vaccines are not as effective as initially advertised. He concludes the time has come to give up the fiction that COVID vaccines remain a necessary tool to promote public health. Mr. Djokovic is an extraordinary tennis player who should have every right to compete in this year's Miami Open, which will commence March 20th. I respectfully ask you to grant his requested exemption so that he may delight and inspire tennis fans in Florida and around the nation. Sincerely, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida. Uh, Dagan, there's there's a lot to unpack there. I, you know, Djokovic is a great player. I'm not a huge tennis fan. I'll watch it. I've been to the U.S. Open. I've been to the French Open. It's It's a lot of talent there. It just sort of blows me away that it's March of 2023, and this world-class young athlete who's perfectly healthy can't come to this country because he didn't get a COVID shot that doesn't actually prevent transmission. I mean, th- there's no, in my mind, scientific justification left for this other than just like, I don't know, it's like superstitious political spite. Well, there's no scientific justification for the United States having a travel ban on people coming to the United States for vacation or to visit family, a ban on people who are unvaccinated. That is a broad air travel ban that is still in place three years later. We know about natural immunity. We know that vaccination will protect you from severe illness if you choose to be vaccinated. But again, if you're vaccinated, 
and boosted right here, buddy. You can catch COVID and you can catch it again and you can spread it and give it to your friends and your relatives or perfect strangers. That's the way it works. Joe Biden has said himself, pandemic's over. May 11th, officially, apparently, under the Biden idiocy, the pandemic's going to end. But this mandate, this vaccine mandate for travelers is still in place. The U.S. House of Representatives, now controlled, of course, by the Republicans, voted last month, early February, to end the foreign air traveler COVID vaccine requirement, as they should have. And the White House said, no way. But this speaks, so this is not about Novak Djokovic. This is about everybody. And it's important to step back and remember all the livelihoods destroyed by misinformation, destroyed by this dug-in bureaucrat class Yep. By destroyed by unscientific mandates. And that's what this is. It's right. totally unscientific. You can't justify it anymore based on the facts. And look, this guy's a famous tennis player that people want to see play. I get that. So it's like an extenuating circumstance. I think it's smart of DeSantis to highlight it because it's a very prominent example. But it, it underscores the unfairness that's being applied to a bunch of people. What if you're a foreign citizen who wants to come to a family wedding in the United States or wants to visit an ailing relative in the United States, or you just want to bring your family here and spend your hard-earned money here on vacation and help the U.S. economy? If you haven't gotten a vaccine, you can't come here and do those things, which makes no sense. Look, I'm for the vaccine, especially for the vulnerable and and older people. But it should be their choice. It should be their choice. And, Guy, I just think about all the people whose lives were destroyed. And I mean people who lost their jobs. Have they gotten their jobs back? I would like to uh, keep a list of the names and stand up for each and every individual who got fired because of vaccine mandates, because Woody Harrelson standing up on the stage making a joke about it in the monologue about the vaccine mandate and the money going to the pharmaceutical companies. Right, at SNL. And then and then Tim Robbins siding with Woody Harrelson. It's very convenient for these celebrities to be able to do that now. But what about all the actors who lost work and might not ever get hired again because because the rules here in New York for Broadway actors were extremely stringent and still are. Well, they're they'll still never crazy. find they'll never find work again. And so yep, and- I just want we this needs to be applied to people who are legal residents and U.S. citizens now to ensure that people can work who have chosen not to be vaccinated because this insanity will not end. And I will say it again. Fear equals control. Control equals power. And this is a class of people who live off of that power. And they get it and they never want to relinquish it. And so it goes back to that. And when you tell us that the vaccines, and I'm not anti-vax and dumping on the, but if you tell us once you get the vaccine, then, you know, we'll get to this herd immunity, then it's over. And then it doesn't really prevent getting the disease or transmitting it. It prevents serious cases and hospitalization and death overwhelmingly, especially, you know, among elderly people or whatever. 
the rules that they're still enforcing totally arbitrarily and capriciously only in certain areas and not in all in other areas, it doesn't have any basis in how the vaccines actually function or don't function. So it, like on top of it being sort of unfair and authoritarian, it also just doesn't even work, which I think right. is an important point. Remember, and not to be too flippant, just let me just make this point and then get your reaction. Not to be too flippant about it, Dagan, and this might sound like, oh, that's a, just a right-wing talking point, but I actually mean this genuinely. Has Novak Djokovic considered flying to Mexico and walking across the border? Because there are no vaccine passports for the millions of illegal immigrants who have entered this country during the pandemic under Joe Biden that they have been totally unserious about stopping. Could we get Novak Djokovic to just illegally enter the country? And would he be able to be treated better by this administration than if he went through the proper channels? Like, I think that's an actual fair question. It is a fair question. And quite frankly, that there the rules are more burdensome on people who just want to travel into the United States or, quite frankly, people who live here illegally and U.S. citizens than on drug smugglers and cartel members. It's crazy. And But how many times have you heard people in this administration talk about the pandemic of the unvaccinated? That is horse manure. And we all know it now. I and I am vaccinated and I got a booster and I have had COVID twice since then. And again, it's the lack of information about I got violently ill both times I got shots. Why? Good luck going online and trying to get information about why I got sick from it. Can't find it because it's buried. And it's buried on purpose because they don't want you to know there's no research out there about just basic side effects from getting these shots. But we do know that it it will protect you, particularly if you're older, from severe disease. But Novak Djokovic, it should be his right to choose to get that shot. And he should be allowed, just like everybody, to come into the United States and play tennis or go to a wedding or what have you. And I wish the Senate in bipartisan fashion would pick up what the House did and move along. The pandemic is over. And so is the power and control, this grab that the left has done. It's time to give it up. The dubious data and talking points that they used to justify this stuff a couple years ago. Masks don't work. Questionable. It was right. It was questionable at the time. And it's just completely blown to smithereens now. And yet, you know, we're still citing presidential proclamations about how you got to have been jabbed if you're going to come in by air. But there might be a loophole by boat. But that, I mean, it's just it's ridiculous. I feel like reading this letter, it's like, when was this dated? March 7th of what year? It was yesterday. Dagan, I want to shift to your wheelhouse. Jerome Powell testifying mm-hmm. Uh, earlier talking about interest rate hikes, uh, perhaps speeding them up. I see the Dow is down slightly today. What is your takeaway? Maybe one or two key ones from Powell's, uh, you know, whatever he's telegraphing. 
He's not saying anything new if you pay attention to what's going on with inflation. And I always think the American people know inflation better than anybody who works in finance, anybody who works in Wall Street, anybody who works in the markets professionally, because they see it and feel it in every nook and cranny of their everyday life. Inflation is not under control. It's still being fueled by the spending from the Biden administration. So that's on the fiscal side because of all the spending packages that were passed into law even at the end of last year. So that's spending that's still fueling inflation. Like the the $400 billion green energy slush fund that John Podesta is sitting on top of, that money is just beginning to be spent. $5 billion every month in student loan payments that aren't being made. The moratorium on making student loan payments, that is pure stimulus. So that's fueling so inflation. What? Well, the Fed's got to fight it. So this is what I call a circular crushing of the American people. Inflation is still high, elevated, about 6.5%, not easing. And then so the Federal Reserve has to keep hiking interest rates. Short-term interest rates are going to go to – and I said this months ago, and Wall Street's just catching up to it. Short-term interest rates are going to go to about 6% probably by the middle of the year. That's how high they're going to have to go. So Americans have had to draw down their savings, savings rates near an all-time low, a multi-decade low at the very least – and their and credit card debt is skyrocketing near a trillion because people are just try, trying to do that to keep it, make ends meet. So the the yield or the interest on short term U.S. Treasuries hit a milestone. It's at the highest level I think since 2007. So that just means borrowing costs are going through the roof. That was yesterday, but. Again, you're crushed by inflation, and now you're going to get crushed by higher interest rates and all the rich fat cats and highfalutin jack legs who are friends with all the liberals. They're sitting pretty. Those are That's the people that the Biden administration cares about. That's why this whole proposed tax increase to pay for Medi- Medicare, that it's in the budget, they know that's not getting passed. That would hurt their hurt their donors. They'd throw it out there, knowing it's not going to go anywhere. Shame on them. So well, I we invite- so we're gonna you know how what fixes it? Deep recession. We're going to be in a deep recession by the end of the year. Well, I hope you're wrong. There's about no good. That. There's no good news. It's inflation. You know what kills inflation? Higher interest rates. But higher interest rates from the Federal Reserve sends us into a deep recession. And I hope. You know, I hope the biggest losers are, you know who, 1,600 pen. Might be the case. But it's There's not- no good news. That, that's, the, that, that's the bottom line, so to speak, from Dagan McDowell. No, the no bottom good news. line is the American spirit is still alive and well. Sean Duffy and I talk about this all the time. He gets down. I'm usually like grump-tastic. Grumptastic from the time I get up from when I go to bed, but I have to I have to lift him up and keep his spirits elevated. The American spirit is alive and well. It's about church, God, family, country. We will persevere, but and and friends, 
like our friend, yes. Dagan McDowell. And Kennedy. And her, and her <laughs> colleague, and, and Kennedy, I'm on her show tonight, right after your show, which is the bottom line coming up at 6 p.m. Eastern, Fox Business Network. we got to leave it there, up on a break. Dagan, always appreciate it, grumptastic or not. You're the best. All right, we'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. An update on a story that we mentioned earlier in the week, and it's not a happy one. Mexican officials have arrested one person allegedly tied to the violent kidnapping of four U.S. citizens in Mexico that left two of those Americans dead. This strikes me, by the way, as like a sacrificial lamb. They've got Americans dead on Mexican soil, murdered by the cartels. And the Mexicans, I mean, they got to do something. So like, oh, yeah, here's we, we found one guy. These four Americans were held captive and tortured for days. It wasn't one guy. The theory is that they were mistaken, these Americans, for Haitian drug smugglers, and therefore they were taken and interrogated. They were just Americans going down there because one of the Americans was trying to get a discount plastic surgery. Now, two of that man's friends are dead. Another one was shot. The surviving two are back on U.S. soil, but two of them are coming back in body bags. What a disaster. I mean, Mexico, large swaths of Mexico. They're just, it's like a failed state. It's a narco state. And this is a miscommunication, it looks like, and a deadly one with the cartels controlling a lot of this territory. And this is what happened. That's right south of our border. Guy Benson Show, another hour straight ahead. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show it's a brand new hour on the guy benson show from washington dc and the tony snow studios i'm very glad to have you all here with us thank you for tuning in GuyBensonShow.com is our website. If you miss a moment of any show, it's always free on demand on our podcast. we got the option there, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcast. It's always available when the show is over. At Guy Benson Show, that's our Twitter and Instagram handle. You can follow us on those platforms or me personally at Guy P. Benson. Fox News Alert as we get going here in our middle hour. The Dow down slightly today, 57 points in the red, closing at 32,798. With us now, Britt Hume, senior political analyst here at Fox News. And Britt, it's good to have you back. Thanks, Guy. Good to be with you. We've been talking on this show kind of all week a bit about the presidential campaign, such as it even really exists right now on the Republican side. And It just strikes me like we're in something of a holding pattern at the moment. We've got people declaring that they're not running, many more than I expected, actually, including senators and governors and the like. We have two serious contenders announced, Trump and Haley, a few others as well, but not exactly top-tier people, and then sort of a waiting game for potentially some others, Pence, Pompeo, of course, DeSantis down the road a little bit here, 
As you look at where things stand right now, what is your analysis of where this campaign is? And has it really even started meaningfully yet? I think it's just getting just uh, beginning to to generate, to germinate. Um, you know, Trump, Trump got in. That was kind of interesting, and he got in so early. Um, and nothing. And, and Nikki Haley got in, having said she wouldn't if he did, which was kind of interesting in its own way. Uh, and beyond that, nothing much has really happened. Um, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's a very smart young man, uh, got in, and I think he did himself a favor because with with the field so unformed, um, he's gotten a lot of uh, opportunity to be on television and and talk, and he's a good talker. Um, but beyond that, the, the race is a little shapeless, I think. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. Uh, what I hear is that Mike Pence has plans to run, and it's just sort of a, a timing thing there. Pompeo has done everything that you could imagine someone would do in order to then run for president. You know, the the serious book, the book tour, the events all over the country, including in early primary states. I mean, he's he's doing all the things and making all the moves that one would – but again, it's sort of a trigger that hasn't been pulled. Uh, I guess he's probably still going to run. I, I did hear someone recently tell me that they was uh, they were hearing that you know maybe he was having some second thoughts. I have no idea if that's true. But you know, here we are in March, and I guess folks are waiting to some extent on DeSantis, but they'll be waiting a while, a couple more months, because of the legislative session there. I don't know. I, I just expected by this point to have things rolling a little bit more. Aggressively, uh, you know, Haley's running every day. She's running hard, but no one else really is, you know, in, in a traditional sense. And I, I guess that's at least a bit surprising to me. Well, that, yeah, a lot of people are waiting to see what DeSantis is going to do. Um, and the, so the question becomes what will be the effect on this so far largely shapeless race in which Trump, you know, it really obviously is the front runner? Because uh, he's got this you know, basis of loyal base of support, what will be the effect on the race if DeSantis gets in? And then the next question will be, what will be what will happen when the other candidates who do finally get in get out? A lot of them will have will not be able to raise enough money. They won't be able to generate enough support to mount a real campaign. Um, and the, the, this race could look a lot like this for a long time, even after DeSantis gets in, because the people who eventually won't be able to won't be able to 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 make the make the grade will still be able to knock around a lot, maybe participate in some debates and so on. And then the, and then when they begin to fall by the wayside, the question will be: Well, where does such support as they have go? Uh, and is will there be enough of it uh, to give DeSantis a real shot at knocking off Trump? DeSantis himself is kind of in the middle of what you might call a shadow campaign, right? He's written a book that a politician might if he were planning to run for president. Uh, He's on the book tour. He's giving a lot of interviews. He's going to Iowa and New Hampshire and a few other places. But he's still undeclared. His major job right now is to try to get as much done as he can in Tallahassee. Super majorities in the legislature there, uh, partially thanks to him uh, and the big huge red wave that he led in that state. But he made an interesting choice, at least in my eyes, Britt, in not going to CPAC this year, which was a very, very, very Trump-centric event, a very Trumpy event, 
Trump, of course, spoke at CPAC and got a lot of attention. We carried it at Fox uh, as he spoke. Lots of empty seats, which was a weird thing to see for any Trump speech, especially at, at a place and, and sort of a, an event that friendly and catering to him, but still very uh, raucous and uh, supportive crowd in that ballroom for Trump. DeSantis was half the country or the full country away on the other coast, speaking at the Reagan Library, just total counter-programming, not going to CPAC. What did you make of that? Well, I thought it was a smart choice, really, because CPAC has devolved, really, from a sort of uh, all-purpose conservative event to a Trump fan club. Uh, And the attendance was down this year. Um, And while Trump won the straw poll, uh, he's won it by more than that in previous uh, years. Not every, you know, he's had he's had early years when he did less, but his his support has waned to some extent, and the fact that the attendance at CPAC was down may be a may be a symptom of that. Uh, so so DeSantis goes elsewhere, and he goes out and acts like he's running against Gavin Newsom in California, um, which is not a bad bit of political positioning for this moment, early as it is and insignificant as it probably will turn out to be. Um, but I thought it was a smart choice on his part. And he stays out of, of, a, of, a, of a, you know, a battle with Trump, um, which I think for the time being is probably wise. At some point, he or somebody will have to take Trump on. He is electing not to do that yet, and I don't think Trump is hurting very much with his attacks on him. Although we have seen polling, and look, you look at some of the state-level polls where DeSantis is right there, if not ahead, if not ahead big in some of these states, but other state polls, Trump is up. uh, His position nationally in the polling in some of the Republican polls across the whole country, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it prohibitive, but pretty dominant right now, the former president. And I guess... Part of the question at the moment is how much do those polls matter, right? You see Trump at 45, 50, 53 percent, whatever, nationally among Republicans and everyone else way down. You know, DeSantis, the only other person in double digits. Those are the types of numbers that could lead people to say, okay, um, you know, is this thing already getting to be over before it even starts? Um, Is it worth other people jumping into this thing if Trump's going to run away with it? Or is there not really a campaign that people are responding to yet? And so some of the early numbers that are good for Trump or not good for Trump are kind of meaningless at this stage. I, I think it's, that, that's an interesting one to puzzle through. There are a lot of different polls around. Um, I think all they tell you is that Trump still has a, a, a significant base within the Republican Party, uh, larger at the moment than any single other candidate. The question then becomes, well, how you know, how, how many people when the other can, uh, that are interested in other candidates now would uh, would be for Trump when the field narrows? And my guess is not that many. And so, you know, we're back to the question I spoke of before, which is, you know, where the support goes when the field narrows, as it inevitably will, and whether, you know, DeSantis will be able to grab that and 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 whether DeSantis then can run a race, if he beats Trump, can run a race that won't completely alienate all of Trump supporters, which is a tricky thing to do because if, you, if he takes him on, 
um, that's a very dangerous game because you can be you can take on a candidate and be effective in diminishing that candidate, but it's hard to look good doing it, and it's hard to look and it's hard to do that without alienating that candidate's supporters. So you know, there's some real challenges ahead. It may fall to somebody else to be the one who takes him on. Maybe Chris Christie or somebody like that, who's yeah. not running but who's tough and effective, uh, who could take Trump on. And it's clearly, and clearly at this point, doesn't care for Trump. Yeah, and might be willing to run and be on the stage, you know, to do that sort of thing. But that also raises more questions. Everything that you just said, you know, well, how will things shake out when the field narrows? I remember that was the big question in 2015 and 2016 too, and it took forever for the field to narrow, and then it was too late. Now, it's going to be a smaller field, it looks like, already, the outset. That's one big change. We've been talking about that. But if you have even six or seven big people who stick around and around and around, and the field doesn't narrow until, you know, we're sort of deep into the process, uh, depending on who's in first place, you know, that, of course, is significant. And then on this DeSantis dilemma, let's say he runs, and let's say he is, you know, performs pretty well and, and is – the obvious closest competitor to Trump, you know, you're right that if he really goes after Trump and prosecutes a case, that could alienate some of the hardcore Trump loyalists. But also, if you just stand there and you're a punching bag and Trump's taking all these shots at you and making fun of you and all these names and inevitably is insulting your family and all the things that Trump always does, and you just sort of stand there and take it and say, well, look at what I've done in Florida and whatever, I mean, that also could look weak. And voters don't like that either. You know, and I think Trump um, thrives when people are too scared to take him on. So I'm not really sure what the solution to that is. I'd imagine, you know, if Ron DeSantis is serious about running and winning, it's probably something he needs to think very long and hard about if he hasn't already. Yeah, I suspect he has thought about that guy. And what we're seeing from him so far represents the strategy that he is uh, that he has adopted for the moment. Right. Um, it's because it's a real co- look. Somebody's going to figure out a way to beat Trump in the Republican Party, um, or somebody somebody might be able to, and and maybe DeSantis will be that person. But it's not easy, and and it's you know, and you don't want the thing to descend into a bloodbath because that kind of thing is usually a formula for losing, for your party to lose the election. Uh, and, I mean, I think you know, the Republicans have a real opportunity in 2024, but there are a lot of ways they can lose, too. They can lose by yeah. nominating Trump, who I don't think could, could win again. Uh, they can lose by beating themselves all to, uh, to a pulp in the primary season so that everybody's so dinged up that nobody looks good for the general. So they're, they've, got a lot of, they've got a lot of perils, opportunities, yeah. but a lot of perils. They do. And on the other side, it looks more and more like Joe Biden is actually going to run again uh, for some reasons that are cropping up even just in the last few days. We'll tackle that with Byron York coming up a little bit later on. Britt Hume, always appreciate it on The Guy Benson Show. Up on a break. Let's take it. And we will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Here's a rare win in the Democrat-controlled U.S. Senate. A woman named Gigi Sohn, who was an FCC nominee from President Biden, has withdrawn from consideration after Senate Republicans and Joe Manchin have blocked the pick, calling her correctly too partisan. She is 
way out there on the left and has said a bunch of inflammatory things. And Republicans were fighting hard against this nomination. And ultimately, Joe Manchin decided it was too much for him as well. He had announced earlier this week that he was also going to be a no. And so she has withdrawn her name. Wall Street Journal with this lead. Gigi Sohn has withdrawn her nomination to serve as a commissioner on the Federal Communications Commission after a stalled confirmation process. Ms. Sohn informed the White House she would be withdrawing. In a statement, Sohn said she was withdrawing because of attacks on her record as an advocate that she said came from, quote, legions of cable and media industry lobbyists, their bought and paid for surrogates, and dark money political groups. It's a sad day for our country and our democracy when dominant industries with assistance from unlimited dark money get to choose their regulators. Yeah, so that's, she's a lefty. She's a hardcore partisan. By the way, the left loves dark money in politics, as long as it's theirs. They are the kings of dark money on the left. And this wasn't just about dark money. It was about things that she has done and said in her record. Again, the the sin here, the crime of the Republicans was to notice and to object. And look, when you've got a 51-49 majority on the Democratic side and you still can't get a nominee through, that's because you don't have all of your own people in line. So it's not all about dark money or whatever excuse she wants to give. But she's gone and she's sort of going down with guns blazing on her way out the door. And my attitude is don't let the door hit you on the way out, Gigi. Bye. Meanwhile, Senator Manchin also announcing he is against another Biden nominee. This time, Biden's pick to head the Internal Revenue Service. Manchin announcing, according to The Hill, that he'll be voting against Daniel Werfel, Biden's choice to head the IRS, because he is unhappy, and this cracks me up, He is unhappy with how the Biden administration is implementing the Inflation Reduction Act, which I will remind you was Joe Manchin's bill. There is no Inflation Reduction Act without Joe Manchin. This was the big deal that he struck with Chuck Schumer last year, handing the Democrats and Biden this giant expensive win, calling it inflation reduction, which it wasn't. Even Bernie Sanders admitted on the Senate floor this is not about inflation reduction or bringing down inflation. This is a climate change spending bill and a taxation bill. That's what it was. They can call it whatever they want. And it was the big compact, right, the agreement that Manchin hammered out with Schumer in a big surprise. Manchin, of course, was promised a bunch of other things like permitting reform that he didn't get. His party reneged. They couldn't deliver on that promise. Now he's going around begging the Republicans to try to keep Chuck Schumer's promise to him, which is sort of a pathetic look, honestly. And I think he's gotten so much blowback, Manchin has, at home in West Virginia, a very red state at this point, that he was so integral to salvaging the Biden agenda in an election year with this extra piece of spending and a misnomer is the Inflation Reduction Act. Now he's sort of looking around saying, what do I do? So now he's making a lot of noise about how he's angry about the implementation of his own bill, which, again, is very rich. What did he expect? Right. The best explanation, the most charitable explanation to him is that he's naive as a longtime political operator. I think he's trying to maybe worm his way back into the good graces of his constituents. He is up for re-election next year, unclear if he's going to run. Some of the polling against certain names, he's in the lead. But against the Republican governor in that state, former Democrat, I'll point out, 
He's down big. So I think Manchin's feeling some flop sweat. And if that means, plus the betrayal of the permitting reform, if that means that he's going to spend the next year or two torpedoing Biden's stuff and bad Biden nominees, great. I'm all for that. Whether it's enough to make people forget what he did last year in West Virginia next year, well, that remains to be seen, but I think that's part of the gambit if I had to guess. The Guy Benson Show resumes after this short break. Byron York here in studio in Washington, D.C. Looking forward to that conversation straight ahead. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. Halfway through the week, halfway through the show, it's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free after the show on demand. No charge every day. With us here in studio, Byron York, chief political correspondent, the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. Byron, always good to see you here. Thank you. Good to be here. I want to play you this soundbite of the White House press secretary making an assertion about the border and the fentanyl crisis that has raised a lot of eyebrows, understandably so, cut five. Because of the work that this president has done, because of what we've done specifically on fentanyl at the border, it's at historic lows, historic levels, uh, that we have been able to uh, record a number of personnel working to secure the border because of what we've been able to do. Seizing that fentanyl, uh, we've done it in a historic way. That's because of what this president has done. Okay, so she's trying to do a victory lap on the border and fentanyl, which she says is at historic lows. I have no idea what she's possibly talking about there. Then she maybe did she say historic lows or historic levels? She said both, back to back. (laughs) Levels would be true. She said historic lows and then historic levels that we've been able to record a number of personnel. It like it was just just played again. Actually, cut five. Let's listen to the verbiage. Because of the work that this president has done, because of what we've done specifically on fentanyl at the border, it's at historic lows, historic levels uh, that we have been able to uh, record a number of personnel working to secure the border because of what we've been able to do. Seizing that fentanyl, uh, we've done it in a historic way. That's because of what this president has done. We're both shaking our head at each other because we don't know exactly what she said. What was that? I don't know. Uh, uh, but she's sort of beating the chest like, look at what we've done. Yeah. What an unbelievably tone-deaf approach to this issue, which is worse than it has ever been. And they're trying to create like this historic success story narrative. Good luck. <laughs> Whoever suggested that the Biden administration's new rhetorical stance on the border is to declare victory – it was probably a bad idea. I think that's right. What was it? Seventy thousand fentanyl deaths in yeah. America alone yeah. last year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this. I mean, this, this this whole situation now with four Americans who crossed the border and uh, two of whom were murdered by apparently some sort of drug gang uh, in this entirely lawless environment near the United States border. I mean, it's just bad. Oh, it's historic, Byron. You have historic. to understand. They're very excited The level about of it. it is historic, I believe. Yes. That is right. That's not what she meant to say, but it's Correct. what she did. So there's KJP striking again. Yeah. Meanwhile, this story in the New York Times, very interesting. It was published earlier in the week. U.S. said to consider reinstating detention of migrant families. The Biden administration is considering reviving the practice 
of detaining migrant families who cross the border illegally. The same policy the president shut down over the past two years because he said he wanted a more humane immigration system, according to officials familiar. And I've seen a lot of progressives on social media resurfacing some Biden tweets, just saying this shouldn't be happening. Uh, Kids should be released along with their parents. Uh, This is inhumane. And now with Title 42 on its way out, Team Biden, I guess, is looking at the problem and saying, well, actually, maybe we got to do more of this after all. And the progressive activists to whom the White House has been utterly beholden on the issue of immigration, they are going bonkers on this. They are furious. I wonder where this goes. Well, this is absolutely extraordinary. And the bigger context of this is this is part of an attempted Joe Biden pivot on the issue of immigration. It's hard to actually believe uh, but we do we do know that the decision from the president on whether he's going to run for reelection is coming up soon. Uh, all the signs indicate that he does want to run for reelection. You look at his biggest policy vulnerability. Look at his job approval ratings, and pollsters always ask, uh, "Do you approve of the way the president is handling uh, the economy or national security?" Well, when it comes to the border and immigration, that's by far his lowest. We had a Quinnipiac poll in which eighteen percent approved of the job he's doing, handling the border. This is a big weakness. Republicans have scored points. So what we have seen in the past three months, or since since January 1, really, the president visited the border for the first time. He, he just ignored it for two years before that. He didn't see any migrants while he was he there. He did not. He got kind of a sanitized picture of what, was going, of, yeah. uh, what was going on. Uh, he has talked about uh, making it harder to uh, for illegal border crossers to get uh, uh, asylum status. He has uh, talked about forcing uh, potential crossers to apply for asylum in uh, a, a country that they have gone through on the way to the United States. Uh, he's talked about specifically limiting the numbers from some countries like Cuba, Venezuela, I think Nicaragua and Haiti. I think it's those four. It's the parole policy that exactly. they've laid out. And I did see some breaking news moments ago. Our colleague Bill Malugin sent it off to me. Apparently, that parole policy has been paused by a, a federal court. Well, there you go. That, so, that, that happens a lot. And now he's talked about family detention, which is when, when Donald Trump did it, a lot of Democrats – uh, talked about the the racism, the cruelty, mm-hmm. uh, j- you know, just the the, the cruelty sheer, is the point. The, the cruelty is the point. They said, and they talked about that. I mean, they talked about that a lot. And that's before the Trump policy, in which he actually separated some families, which did outrage a lot of people, not just uh, the opposition party. Right. But but family detention, for which the United States has legal provisions. Uh, so Biden ended that. Uh, just like he ended a lot of Trump policies when he came into office. And didn't uh, just end it, very ostentatiously oh, did it, yeah. like, you know, morally indignant. Exactly. And exactly. and now it's like, oh, second look. Second look. <laughs> Be- because you're, you're right about uh, Title 42, which means that the United States will, will lose its perhaps most effective tool from the past three years – of uh, turning back illegal border crossers, which is to say to stop the spread of COVID, which the president says is no longer a pandemic. Uh, So without that, what are they going to do? But it also is part of a pivot uh, because he realizes that uh, uh, his immigration and border policies are a major liability. And we're also, I mean, why do you think we saw 
the president say that he would sign a bill mm-hmm. overturning the District of Columbia crime law. That was my next point. Pivot, I mean, pivot, pivot. Pivot. And I think if there's ever a string of breadcrumbs pointing in the direction <laughs> of a re-election campaign, oh, yeah, yeah. this would be it, right? Yeah. I don't think he's really up for it. The party isn't excited about it. I don't think he has it in him to be president for six more years. But if you're trying to read whatever the tea leaves might be out there, for him to abruptly rush to the center on crime and rush to the center somewhat on immigration. Absolutely true. I mean, it's not not like, you know, politics 301. This is politics 101. I mean, I think there are some Republicans who just – think, you know, he's going to be 82 years old running for re-election to serve till he's 86. I think it's they think that, you know, at some point Biden is just going to look in the mirror and say, you know, I am too old to be president. I don't think I'll run. But no, uh, he does not see it that way, especially uh, with the continued um, uh, uh, power of Donald Trump in the Republican ranks. Joe Biden has apparently convinced himself that he, Joe Biden, is the only man standing between the United States and the Trumpian abyss, and he must run. So I I think for whatever reason, uh, the president, who I believe and many people believe is too old to serve a second term, um, is really planning to serve a second term. He's going to try. Try. And we'll see if the Republicans put up someone almost his age or someone much younger. (laughs) Will it be a generational choice or not? Or not. That's uh, TBD. It remains to be seen. Part of what we were talking earlier about with Britt Hume and really been talking about all week. One more point on the D.C. crime stuff, Byron. Mm -hmm. I saw on Twitter earlier today there was a guy who is at Union Station, just steps from where we sit right Mm -hmm. now, and happened to capture on camera, on film, a carjacking attempt in broad daylight, like a food delivery car. Mm-hmm. Someone was trying to steal it, and the police got involved. And just within literal shouting distance of this attempted carjacking was some sort of protest on criminal justice reform <laughs> in D.C. I mean, you can't make it up. We laugh. It's actually yeah. quite scary. Yeah. And, and it's it's amazing to me that the D.C. City Council can be so unbelievably reckless and so stupid that they would hand Republicans the easiest political win of all time to the point that even Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer and others have felt like they have to get on board for some adult supervision of a city council that they claim to support when it comes to home rule and statehood, for crying out yeah. loud. And clearly they can't be trusted even to manage their own city, let alone turn into a state. And it just seems like a huge political misstep by a bunch of crazy radicals that control Washington, D.C. Politically stupid, but also the substance of it as well. I oh, mean, if, very stupid. If that carjacker actually were, were caught and prosecuted, he, he would be given a lighter sentence, according to the D.C. Council. And, by the way, if he committed the crime using a firearm, he would get a yet lighter sentence because they were reducing sentences for carjacking, for all sorts of felonies that are committed with guns. Yeah. And it's it's astonishing, and we should say— this is a fight between Democrats, okay? There's 13 
members of the D.C. Council, 11 of them are Democrats, two of them call themselves independents, they're really Democrats, or further to the left, and then the, the mayor is a Democrat. So it's a fight between Democrats. The mayor, to her credit, vetoed the bill, said she uh, opposed it, vetoed it, and then the, the city council, on a 12-to-1 vote, I think, overturned her veto to make it law. So oh, they were committed to this pro-crime policy. Absolutely. And it is baffling. It's absolutely baffling. It would be less baffling in a climate of low crime. Yeah. That is not what we have here in Washington, D.C. No. no. And we'll talk a bit about how New York seems to be speaking of pivots, pivoting away from some of this crazy equity stuff uh, coming up in the next hour. But D.C. is not making that shift yet, but they might be forced to by Congress. And Republicans in Congress with Democrats now feeling like, okay, crime is a huge vulnerability. This is not only an outrage, but it's embarrassing in D.C. And Republicans, we either get on board and overturn this insanity or Republicans are going to eat our lunch on it. And so they've made a political choice here. Speaking of political choices, last question for you, Byron York. Earlier this afternoon, you were on the news channel on America Reports, and you were talking about the life and times of one Pete Buttigieg, <laughs> the transportation secretary. I have defended Pete occasionally because I think some of the stuff that comes his way on a personal level is unfair, uh, mean-spirited, uncalled for, that sort of thing. I have also simultaneously thought that while he's a bright person, I think there's no questioning that, he has struck me as vastly overrated and yeah. someone who is good at talking – And that's about it and has just spent his entire career plotting his next rung of the ladder of power. And that landed him in the presidential cabinet at the age that he's achieved. So, you know, good job, I guess, in terms of the acquisition of power process. But at some point, you have to actually be good at doing things and doing the job. And I just wonder if you feel like the luster is really off of Pete Buttigieg after this whole East Palestine incident where you have even outlets like CNN with headlines that he's starting to reconsider how he does his job. I mean, as Katie Pavlich, I've now quoted her several times. She was on this show earlier in the week. She said, what, like, what did he think the job was exactly? Yeah, yeah. I Listen, I, I think that it has done him enormous damage. Now, I, he's a very ambitious guy. He ran for president after serving two terms as mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Well, I mean, excuse me, Byron. Something. Credit where it's due. He also ran for DNC chair and came in like fourth place. Thank you. He also ran for, what, state treasurer or something in Indiana and lost by 20 points. So there were other things so, that he attempted. So unsuccessful attempts count as experience, too. Well, he ran for president doing these things. And, um, you know, the the interesting thing was, if you look back to the 2020 race, he's 37 years old, candidate for president, uh, he wins the Iowa caucuses. Now, I'm, I kind of put a question mark on yeah, that. Sort of. I he's mean, sort of because you know they couldn't count votes. They, the, they, the Democrats messed it up so bad, and they kind of went into a closed room and came out and said that Pete won, and Bernie Sanders has never believed it. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, he did, uh, and he. But so what, when you do that, you raise your status in the party for for the next thing, whatever the next thing is. And for Buttigieg, the uh, president Biden uh, uh, rewarded him with a cabinet position. And I, the, the, the column I wrote is kind of based on the Peter Principle, uh, in this case Peter Buttigieg, but the Peter Principle, a, a longtime management 
principle. Uh, there was a there was a, a, a academic who studied corporations named Lawrence Peter. He wrote this book, and he said that you know you 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 get a job in an, in a corporation, uh, you do well, you get promoted. Uh, you have another a higher job with more responsibility. You do well at that, and you get promoted again. Maybe it happens even one more time. Ultimately, you get promoted to a job that you actually don't do very well, and it's beyond your abilities. And you don't get promoted again. You stay right there. Uh, you've reached what it's called what he called your level of incompetence. So now you have the Department of Transportation, which was supposed to give uh, Pete Buttigieg some sort of uh, resume luster. Uh, it's a big organization, 58,000 um, uh, employees. It's not like the State Department. It's not like the Justice Department, but it's, but it's an important. And obviously we've seen in Ohio and in all of these incidents with uh, uh, air traffic and all sorts of other things, it's a, it's a darned important position. And he has not really been able to handle it. No, because he has no meaningful experience in that area at all. No. And I don't think it's a mistake or a coincidence that he has switched home states now. He's not from Indiana anymore. He's moved to Michigan. That might give you a sense of what the next plan might be for him. Peter Principal, I'm not sure if I buy it because uh, we currently have a sitting president who I would argue was not terribly competent in either of his previous jobs over many decades. And he kept getting promoted. He can't get promoted any higher. So, uh, well, maybe the Peter Principle does not apply to electoral politics. I'm not entirely sure, although Buttigieg was appointed in this case. Correct. Byron York, good conversation. Read his stuff every day at the Washington Examiner. Fox News contributor here with us. We'll see you soon. Thank you. It's the Guy Benson Show. We will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back on the Guy Benson Show. Some more violence in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We had talked a few weeks ago about how there was a massacre of Jews in Israel outside of a synagogue, which was retaliation by Palestinian terrorists for what apologists were calling a massacre by the Israelis in the West Bank city of Jenin, which was an Israeli military raid targeting militant leaders. And of the supposed victims in that raid, many of them were confirmed militants, which got just glazed right over by all the usual suspects, including a handful in Congress, members of the squad. Well, there have been reprisals and back and forth, tit for tat. Here's the latest one. And I saw some people professing outrage. Oh, it's another massacre. Well, even NBC News had to tell the truth about it. Israeli forces stormed into a refugee camp in the occupied West Bank city of Jenin on Tuesday killing at least six Palestinian militants in the latest in a series of deadly military raids carried out in broad daylight. So they're still trying to frame this as Israel's fault. But listen to this. Israel said troops targeted and killed a Hamas operative responsible for gunning down two Israeli brothers last month. Palestinian armed groups later said that all five of the other fatalities were also militants and members of either Hamas, Islamic Jihad, or the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades. So, six dead terrorists. Is this a bad look for Israel? I don't think so. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up next. Carol Markowitz is here. Stay with us.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour on this Wednesday on the Guy Benson Show. Back here on our home turf, the Tony Snow Studios at the D.C. Bureau of Fox News. I am Guy Benson. Thank you for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free on demand after the show is over. So please do check that out if you couldn't listen to the whole show today or any day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us on social media. You can follow me as well on those platforms at Guy P. Benson. This hour sponsored by our good friends at the Finnish Long Drink, whose product is delicious and refreshing. And I recommend it if you're 21 plus only, of course. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. Catch me tonight on Kennedy right around 725, 730. That's the intel I'm getting. Eastern Time, Fox Business Network, part of the panel, always a blast. Check it out. With us now is Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post and foxnews.com, and she is co-author with our mutual friend, Bethany Mandel, of a brand new book that we had teased a few weeks ago, but now it is available everywhere, Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation. Carol, congratulations on the book. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Guy. Thanks so much for having me. It's my understanding that you guys are outselling Bernie Sanders. Is that correct? Oh, we have blown past him. <laughs> Yesterday, we were we were one apart from him. Um, I think we were in 18th of new releases, and he was in 17th or something. And now he's like in the 20s, and we're in the top 10. No big deal. <laughs> well, we love to see it. And, of course, he's selling his book, which is hilarious. His book on socialism and hating capitalism is not free. You have to pay for it. And you can also go to his Hating Capitalism in-person tour for pretty high ticket prices as well, which is just a very fun little side note. Uh, You know, Bernie certainly hates capitalism, but he really loves money. And when you're at the top of the socialist totem pole, it usually works out pretty well for you, which is how you end up with a socialist senator with, what, three houses and county? He's got to buy a fourth house somehow, so you can't begrudge him that. Uh, He just doesn't really like other people earning money for themselves and being able to keep it. All right, Carol, so you and Bethany have written Stolen Youth, and it seems almost more than anything a clarion call, a warning to parents. And I think that there's a sense, and I think for folks like us who've marinated in this stuff and talked about it so many times, it's sort of mind-blowing that any parents still might have this false sense of security after what we've witnessed over the last three years in particular. But I think, you know, a lot of parents are just out there and uh, they're busy people and they want to believe the best about society and others. And they just assume some of this craziness that's out there, you know, might be happening some places. They're not comfortable with it, but they feel like they're kind of okay. Their kids are probably immune. That's not happening in their school. And you and Bethany are saying, do not make that assumption. 
you nailed it, really. That's exactly what's happening. Parents always feel that their school is the exception to this. And I heard this during the pandemic, too. It was like, yeah, my kids don't really go to school, but at least my school is handling it well. I'm like, if your kids are not going to school, then your school is not handling it well. But uh-huh. they, there's this excuse-making for your own school. And, you know, you also see this in uh, when you, people are asked what they think of Congress. They always hate Congress, but they always like their own congressmen. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing that we're facing here, where they don't believe that this is happening in their school. And, you know, you also mentioned that you and I have, like, marinated in this. And, you know, I, I really didn't think there'd be a lot of surprises for me writing this book, but there were. And, I mean, among them was if you had told me, hey, Carol, um, teachers' colleges use Marxist texts, literally books with Marxist concepts um, in their teachings, and they teach the teachers, and the teachers then disperse throughout the country, and they teach the students this exact same Marxist concept. Um, I would have been like, come on, that's kind of an exaggeration. I'm sure that's not really happening. It's literally happening. It's part of the curriculum in teachers' colleges that they use Marxist books, and that's how they get indoctrinated and are able to pass it on to the kids. What else did you discover along the way? Because you've been writing column after column on these themes, and I'm sure you drew on a lot of that information and that wisdom for the book, and Bethany's been fighting in the same space, but you also are bringing new information to the table. You just gave one example. What else might be surprising to folks? Um, I think that the the extent of how unpopular these people's policies are, like we think that leftism is growing in popularity, that it's booming. Um, it's taken over so many organizations and institutions and schools. And um, and that's all true, except it's still deeply unpopular in America. Only 7% of Americans consider themselves very liberal. And that, that number will fall even lower once you get into like wokeism or progressivism. So what's happening is these people are pushing through their ideas with force, with social force. And you see it happening where they're they're very loud and companies take them seriously because they don't want to be called out. Uh, and the thing is that the majority don't want this, but they're afraid. And that fear is very familiar throughout history where this social pressure to conform has been a part of all kinds of totalitarian societies. And America's heading in that direction. If you're worried about speaking up because you're worried something's going to happen to you, that's a problem. And that's exactly what's been going on for the last few years. So what's the antidote to this? I know conservatives say, okay, homeschooling and school choice, and I agree with that. I think I'm fully in favor of those options. There are also a lot of parents who live in places where school choice isn't an option and won't be anytime soon because the powers that be are entrenched against it. And two working parents or a single parent, they can't homeschool. What can people actually do to push back on this if they're in the middle of their own very busy lives and don't have time to write a book like yours or become full-time activists? Right. So Bethany and I have very different paths. I have three kids. Two of them are in public. One of them is in private. Bethany has six kids that she homeschools. And we present our own paths at the end of the book. I say keep your kids in the culture, but give them the foundation and give them the the tools to fight back themselves, to grow into resilient adults who are able to hear opposing opinions or, um, you know, be friends with people who don't agree with everything that they say, etc. And Bethany says pull your kids from the culture and protect them in that way. 
Look, these are two different paths. I couldn't homeschool. Uh, she feels like she couldn't send them to public or private schools. And I get that. I, I really do. The answer is not going to be the same for all families. And you find the answer that's correct for yours. I think where we really agree, Bethany and I, is find community. And I think that it really, especially conservatives, you know, this independent streak, I think we don't think about that. I mean, obviously, you know, we talk about like you ha- you should have a community, you should go to church or, or shul or whatever. Um, sure. But if you're in a community where nobody agrees with you politically, that is a hard slog. I would say if you can do what we did and move. And maybe it's not moving states. Maybe it's moving neighborhoods. Maybe it's moving school districts. Maybe it's moving, you know, towns. Um, But childhood is short. You do what you have to do for your family. And there are multiple paths you can take to that sanity. Speaking of community, I just have to confess that I got not an angry or indignant text message from you, but sort of like a what the hell text message from you a few days ago because you saw on my social media that I was in South Florida and you're like, excuse me, I am like the mayor of visiting conservatives to Florida. You did not inform me of your trip. Like I should have like cleared it with you or gotten a travel visa into Markowitz land. Uh, so I do apologize for that. But we should find a way to hang out down in Florida or elsewhere at some point on the community point that you're making. Absolutely, yes. And, you know, I'll pressure you to have children so they could hang out with my children. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Meanwhile, I want to talk about your old stomping grounds, the place that you left and moved to Florida. We've talked about that many times. This is a piece in the New York Post, and I just find it remarkable that this needs to be highlighted and said, but obviously common sense and basic empirical evidence is not so common or so respected these days as you might anticipate that it would be or should be. Crime has been such a huge problem in so many cities, including in New York. And we've been talking about so much of the crime happening on subways. And it got so bad and people were so angry. Finally, the mayor, Eric Adams, and the officials in New York City decided, okay, we need to adopt a new approach. Just the outcry was too vast, too broad, and just soothing, feel-goodery buzzwords like equity and justice just weren't cutting it when people were getting shot and stabbed and assaulted and mugged constantly in New York subways in particular. And so there has been a shift. And amazingly, Carol, the shift is working. These are just timeless truths, and I guess we have to remind people of it. Let me read from the story in the Post. City subway crime has dropped so far this year to levels not seen in decades aside from the pandemic, as cops significantly ramped up their crackdown on fare evasion, doling out nearly 10,000 more summonses in 2023 than at the start of last year. Police figures show major crime on the subways is down 21.5% year-to-date compared to the same period in 2022, with every category of serious felonies except one in the underground system showing a decrease. This against a backdrop of cops issuing a staggering 75.6% more fare evasion tickets over the first nine weeks of 2023, totaling 21,360 compared to less than 13,000 over the same period last year. And police officials say proactive policing on minor offenses as well as serious crimes are helping drive down serious crimes. Now, None of this is surprising, Carol. None of it should be surprising. When you don't respect the rule of law and you send 
a clear message to the population that the government is ambivalent about crime, especially, quote unquote, low level crime or, quote unquote, victimless crime that emboldens people, that erodes respect for the rule of law. And you then get more serious crimes and a proliferation of more dangerous stuff if you enforce the small stuff and telegraph to the population, we take the laws and the rules seriously, and you must too, that has a trickle-up effect, if you will, on more serious crimes as well. You know, whatever he's become these days, back in the day, Rudy Giuliani got New York City crime under control exactly through this approach. And it's just, to me, tragic that it took so much harm and death and crime to maybe reawaken these obvious realities but at least it's happening and like the conservative law and order approach it's not just the fair thing it's not just the just thing it works carol yeah we called it broken windows and that's what it was it was the broken windows theory where you had to prosecute the small level crimes in order to stop the bigger crimes and it worked and it worked and it worked and it worked and then they stopped it because they didn't like the way it sounded and then it stopped working because they weren't doing it. And now they're back to doing it. And now they're not calling it broken windows anymore. But, like, they can call it whatever they want. Obviously, more police on the subways was going to lead to lower crime. It was so obvious and clear that it could only the woke wouldn't understand that. But because yep. up is down and black is white in the woke world, this is the problem. You can't say the most obvious things. and You can't deal with problems in the most obvious way because we have this these people who are loud and they say crazy things and they push us to do crazy things and they need to be fought i think that's well said and i just wanted to get that topic in with you given so many of the words that you've written and said about your former city and this is at least like a little glimmer of light at the end of a subway tunnel and it didn't take rocket science to help get this trajectory heading in the right direction it took just basic obvious steps that a lot of officials resisted for a long time shamefully But at least they've been basically shamed into finally returning to the right thing and the proven results and solutions. Carol Markowitz, our guest, she writes regularly at The New York Post and for FoxNews.com. Most importantly these days, she is all over the place selling her book that she's written with Bethany Mandel. It is entitled Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation. If you have kids, you need to read it. If you have grandkids, you need to read it. If you have friends with kids or you're thinking about having kids, you need to read it. I strongly recommend it. These are smart ladies. And at the very least, just help them leave Bernie Sanders in the dust when it comes to sales. Stolen Youth available everywhere right now. Carol, again, congratulations. Best of luck. Mazel tov. And we'll talk again soon. Thank you. And with that, we will step aside. We'll come right back. It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Please stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Back in D.C. after my birthday, I've heard from a number of you asking, how was your birthday? How did it go? How was the event at Northwestern last night, my speaking engagement? And I will have a few more birthday retrospective thoughts coming up during the home stretch, including an additional birthday shout out that I was not expecting that we will play for you. It's not Carly Rae Jepsen, which was just a mind blower, but this one's pretty cool as well. That's coming up at the end of this hour. Just briefly on the Northwestern event, it was very cool to be back on campus. 
in this capacity. I've gone back for sporting events, but this was different. Amazingly, I spoke in one of the old classic venues on campus that I had literally never set foot in as a student. I'd never been there before. I knew where it was. I knew of it. I had just never had an occasion to go. It was the same place, by the way, where Jeff Sessions was like protested and it became this mini riot and they had to shut the thing down. And that became a big, embarrassing black eye to the university. And I was very critical of that whole episode and the way that it was handled, the way that it was covered by the student newspaper, which was disgraceful, the Daily Northwestern at the time. That was the same place where I spoke last night. Much less of a raucous crew. Mostly students, but some community members came, some listeners came, and Fox News viewers. So it was fun to meet some of you. I tried to stay as long as possible shake hands, take selfies, that sort of thing. After my remarks in the Q&A, it was a little over an hour in total. I spoke for half of it and then took questions for half of it. And the questions were overall very respectful, thoughtful. It was a mix of people who were there who, you know, wanted to know what's Gutfeld like and how do you enjoy doing outnumbered and, you know, Fox fan type questions and other things about the role of media, questions that were perhaps a bit more pointed as well, but not disrespectful. And I really enjoyed it. So I'm grateful to the Northwestern Student Political Union that just got started after I graduated. I graduated in 07. They launched in 2008. And it's this cross-ideological, cross-partisan, basically debating society. They were the primary sponsor. Uh, and the students were great. I had dinner afterwards with the executive board. I'm just very grateful, and it's very cool to meet a young generation of Wildcats who value free speech, free expression, the exchange of ideas. People at the dinner were across the spectrum and just had a great time. And then this morning, I will admit, a brutal wake up, a brutal alarm after not much sleep the previous night either. And I was shuffling like a zombie through O'Hare Airport to get home and do the show and all of that. And the TSA agent who was checking me through in my boarding pass looked at my ID, then looked up at me. He listens to the show every day. And he could not have been any nicer. So hello, sir. If you're listening right now, I really appreciate that. That was a nice little pick-me-up in the wee hours of the morning, at least from this Night Owl's perspective. Uh, That was fun. The Guy Benson Show fans, you guys are everywhere, means a lot to us. We'll take a break. We'll come back on the happy hour. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today, Dagan McDowell joined us as she's getting ready for her bottom line program, FBN, coming up in just a few minutes. But earlier, we got her reaction to a host of stories. Here's part of that conversation with Dagan. It just sort of blows me away that it's March of 2023, and this world-class young athlete who's perfectly healthy can't come to this country because he didn't get a COVID shot that doesn't actually prevent transmission. I mean, there's no, in my mind, scientific justification left for this other than just like, I don't know, it's like superstitious political spite. Well, there's no scientific justification for the United States having a travel ban on people coming to the United States or vacation, or to visit family, a ban on people who are unvaccinated. That is a broad air travel ban that is still in place three years later. 
We know about natural immunity. We know that vaccination will protect you from severe illness if you choose to be vaccinated. But again, if you're vaccinated and boosted right here, buddy, you can catch COVID and you can catch it again and you can spread it and give it to your friends and your relatives or perfect strangers. That's the way it works. Joe Biden has said himself, pandemic's over. May 11th, officially, apparently, under the Biden idiocy, the pandemic's going to end. But this mandate, this vaccine mandate for travelers is still in place. The U.S. House of Representatives, now controlled, of course, by the Republicans, voted last month, early February, to end the foreign air traveler COVID vaccine requirement, as they should have. And the White House said, no way. But this speaks, so this is not about Novak Djokovic. This is about everybody. And it's important to step back and remember all the livelihoods destroyed by misinformation, destroyed by this dug-in bureaucrat class, yep. by destroyed by unscientific mandates. And that's what this is. It's right. totally unscientific. You can't justify it anymore based on the facts. And look, this guy's a famous tennis player that people want to see play. I get that. So it's like an extenuating circumstance. I think it's smart of DeSantis to highlight it because it's a very prominent example, but it it underscores the unfairness that's being applied to a bunch of people. What if you're a foreign citizen who wants to come to a family wedding in the United States or wants to visit an ailing relative in the United States, or you just want to bring your family here and spend your hard-earned money here on vacation and help the U.S. economy. If you haven't gotten a vaccine, you can't come here and do those things, which makes no sense. Look, I'm for the vaccine, especially for the vulnerable and and older people. But it should be their choice. It should be their choice. And, Guy, I just think about all the people whose lives were destroyed. And I mean people who lost their jobs. Have they gotten their jobs back? I would like to... Uh, keep a list of the names and stand up for each and every individual who got fired because of vaccine mandates, because Woody Harrelson standing up on the stage making a joke about it in the monologue about the vaccine mandate and the money going to the pharmaceutical companies. Right. At SNL. And then and then Tim Robbins siding with Woody Harrelson. It's very convenient for these celebrities to be able to do that now. But what about all the actors who lost work and might not ever get hired again because because the rules here in New York for Broadway actors were extremely stringent and still are. Well, they're they'll still never crazy. find they'll never find work again. And so yep, and- I just want we this needs to be applied to people who are legal residents and U.S. citizens now to ensure that people can work who have chosen not to be vaccinated because this insanity will not end. And I will say it again. Fear equals control. Control equals power. And this is a class of people who live off of that power. And they get it and they never want to relinquish it. And so it goes back to that. And when you tell us that the vaccines, and I'm not anti-vax and dumping on the, but if you tell us once you get the vaccine, then, you know, we'll get to this herd immunity, then it's over. And then it doesn't really prevent 
getting the disease or transmitting it, it prevents serious cases and hospitalization and death overwhelmingly, especially, you know, among elderly people or whatever. The rules that they're still enforcing totally arbitrarily and capriciously only in certain areas and not in all in other areas, it doesn't have any basis in how the vaccines actually function or don't function. So like on top of it being sort of unfair and authoritarian, it also just doesn't even work, which I think is an important point. And not to be too flippant, just let me just make this point and then get your reaction. Not to be too flippant about it, Dagan, and this might sound like, oh, that's just a right-wing talking point, but I actually mean this genuinely. Has Novak Djokovic considered flying to Mexico and walking across the border? Because there are no vaccine passports for the millions of illegal immigrants who have entered this country during the pandemic under Joe Biden that they have been totally unserious about stopping. Could we get Novak Djokovic to just illegally enter the country? And would he be able to be treated better by this administration than if he went through the proper channels? Like, I think that's an actual fair question. It is a fair question. And quite frankly, that there the rules are more burdensome on people who just want to travel into the United States or, quite frankly, people who live here illegally. That full discussion with Dagan McDowell, our colleague here at Fox, available online, GuyBensonShow.com, part of our free podcast. The whole show every day, start to finish, totally free on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a bit of a look back on the birthday festivities from yesterday and an update on another birthday greeting that I got. That was quite a surprise. That's next when we return. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Wednesday back in D.C. After my birthday in Chicagoland yesterday. Glad to be home. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. In case you're curious, no, I am not over the surprise Carly Rae Jepsen birthday greeting that I got here yesterday during the home stretch on my actual birthday. I still can't believe that got pulled off by Christine and her collaborators. Just amazing. And as I mentioned earlier, I was back at Northwestern, gave a speech that went well. When I got back to the hotel, and forgive me, I've just been traveling constantly and not sleeping very much. So, like, my brain has been a scramble throughout the day. But it was late at night. I got back to the hotel, and I got a text message from another friend who has a connection to someone who I guess is, like, aware of the show and might occasionally listen. This is a friend named Ken who lives in Tennessee. And he passed along, very generously, a birthday greeting from someone else. Now, I'm not going to tell you who it is just yet. I wonder if you might just recognize the voice who said this to me yesterday. Hey, guy. I've been out in the chicken coop earlier today. Got three new baby chicks. Now I'm in my studio taking calls and doing my radio show. And somebody who adores you said, uh, it's your birthday, so happy birthday to you. Take care. God bless. Is that ringing a bell? For some of you, you're like, who is that? Some of you know. 
Some of you are like, oh, I know exactly who that is. Others, no clue. And even when I reveal, it will mean nothing to you. But there's another group of you out there saying, I can't quite place it, but I know that voice. Imagine listening to the radio in your car late at night, and you want some easy listening, some soft rock perhaps, maybe a song or two dedicated to strangers around the country from their loved ones seeking advice from a wise radio personality who has been doling out advice on her show for many years. Yes. That was a hello, a happy birthday from Delilah. Better known as Delilah. If you listen to the radio in this country ever, by accident, you've probably listened to Delilah at some point. So I was just totally tickled by that. Thank you, Delilah. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Carly Ray. Thank you, Laura and Nate. It's just many thank yous. And also all the people who sent me notes and tweets and messages on social wishing me a happy birthday. Admittedly, 38 is not exactly an exciting one, right? It reminds me in some ways of like 19 or 27. It's just a nondescript birthday. Like 18 is momentous, 21 momentous, 30 momentous, 40 will be a big one. 38, you're just like, yeah, a couple of years till 40, I guess. Nevertheless, you guys made me feel special and uh, very much loved and cared for on my day, an exciting early March Tuesday when I was traveling for work. <laughs> but it was a good experience. Now, Christine, we have mentioned Delilah here on the show before. I have sung the Delilah jingle before on the show. I don't even remember how her show or her name came up and what the context was, but we've talked about it once or twice here. And if I'm not mistaken, if I recall correctly, you are not only someone who knows who Delilah is, you are something of a fan, and you have also even, what, through the years, reached out to the show, sought advice from Delilah. Is that right? Yeah. Also, I don't think you were doing the jingle correctly. It's Delilah. I don't think so. I think it's Delilah. Mm, I think we're going to have to have Dan find it for us. I think we can. Fi- I think we can actually resolve this pretty quickly. Delilah. Delilah. Hang on. Dan, tell me I'm right. Delilah. I won. No, isn't there like a, a newer version of that jingle? Delilah. There it is. There it is. Mm-hmm. I was right. Oh, I was right. Delilah. That's what I sang, and that's what they just sang. I feel like we're going to have to agree to disagree because you and I keep singing. uh, If we keep singing Delilah, people are going to tune us out. Yeah, that'll be the end of the show, perhaps. They're like, on the 17th Delilah, we decided to cancel the program permanently, which Uh, is not a reflection on her. It's a reflection on us and our singing. Yeah, your singing, yes. Um, I just want to say about Delilah, you said, you know, 
there was many reasons why you would tune in. I tuned in because I wanted to hear who was writing in and who broke their heart. Who hurt you? And what is Delilah going to do to make it better? Mm-hmm. Now, she's admitted, I think, this was the context of one of our Delilah conversations, that it's somewhat ironic that she is out there dishing all this relationship advice because she has been married many times. Right. We ended up looking it up. It was something like it was three or more times, I'm pretty sure. But she just has that soothing presence and some common sense approach to relationships and life and just makes you feel good about yourself. And then we'll just play a song by like Katy Perry. That's just how that show goes. And she's been on for a very long time. But you enjoy sort of peering into other people's problems and other people's struggles, listening to the show, just sort of like rubbernecking, radio style. But you also have asked Delilah for advice yourself, right? Many. Or am I just hallucinating? No. I've written to Delilah many, many times. Not once has she ever read my letter on air. Not once did she give me any solid advice, and she never, ever played my requests, um, all of them being Phil Collins. Phil Collins. That, and also, it sounds like she would play a lot of Phil Collins, if mm-hmm. I had to guess. Yeah. Right? That's sort of in her wheelhouse. Okay. Well, now that we know that she's aware of the show, and at least I've been told that she likes me on some level, maybe we can get her in here at some point, and we can do, oh, my goodness, we could do, it's like Sincerely Cat, but with Delilah, like an actual advice-giving professional to take nothing away from Kat, right? And Kat Timpf and her wisdom, her wisdom is a different kind of wisdom than Delilah's. So after all those unrequited requests for help and advice flowing in one direction, we could maybe get Delilah here to give you so much life advice all at once. It might be overwhelming. I might have to prepare Delilah for what would be coming from cookie because i think that there's a lot of advice and common sense that needs to be visited upon cookie frankly and maybe if she won't take it for me or anyone else maybe the dulcet tones of delilah will do the trick get you back on the straight and narrow i didn't know i was off of it but okay um between delilah cat you and obviously my new friend the medium which is happening Ugh. in a couple of weeks Uh, I guess I'll be back on the straight and narrow. See, I feel like Delilah might encourage you not to waste your money on the medium. Right? That seems like something that Delilah might say. And then play Rachel Platten for your listening pleasure. Something like that. That's how I can imagine this going. Oh, now I'm excited. Now this needs to happen. We have somehow created a whole segment out of a birthday that's no longer my birthday based on Another radio personality that has nothing to do with this show. <laughs> That's the the worst part is we're talking about a radio <laughs> host has nothing to do with our show. Right, but also not like in our format either. Like I don't think there's a lot of head-to-head competition in the Guy Benson show and Delilah audiences. She has better jingles than I do because I don't have jingles. Oh, we should maybe change that. What would my jingles be? Guy Benson. No, we want people to stay tuned to the show, Christine. Dan's looking at me like I've officially lost it. I, I had and nothing, plus, like, no words. We need some more, like, uh, some, like, high-energy jingles. 
perhaps from the professionals at Jam Creative Productions in Dallas, Texas. You know what? Let's just put all this into the hopper. We'll put it into the brainstorm box. And then, you know, Wyatt will go through the brainstorm box and weed out all the terrible ideas, as he always does, usually Christine's. And then we can have a team meeting about it, perhaps. If we maybe schedule another Guy Benson show team retreat, which we haven't had in a while. But now all of a sudden I'm feeling like I need to get closer with my colleagues and my friends and people who matter to me because life is short and you never know what's coming tomorrow. So live for now and value your life and your relationships. And now here's Hello by Lionel Richie. I'm just in a Zen place. It is now the evening as well. Sun heading down. I got to snap out of this. I got to do Kennedy's show. And like, I need some pep in my step. I can't be just chill like Delilah. For Kennedy, in the 7 p.m. hour Eastern Fox Business Network tonight. Hope to see you there. Back here on the radio from D.C. tomorrow. Same time, same place as always for The Guy Benson Show. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.